0: Tonight is the third and final message in this mini series we've been doing about Christ the Mediator. Two Sunday evenings ago, we looked at Christ the Prophet. Last Sunday evening, we looked at Christ the Priest. And this evening, we're looking at Christ the King. Theologians have long recognized that these are the three aspects of Christ's mediatorial work. And so tonight, the big idea is simply that Christ is the consummate King. We've seen that Christ is the consummate prophet, that Christ is the consummate priest, and tonight we will see that Christ is the consummate king. So that's the big idea. And tonight the structure of the messages is just going to be really simple. We're just going to walk through the Bible. We're going to look at a number of key passages pertaining to the kingship of Christ. We're going to uh, hang the, uh, the first number of passages all on the hook of Old Testament expectation and then we're gonna hang the second cluster of texts on the hook of New Testament fulfillment and so there's basically gonna be two points of the message tonight Old Testament expectation and New Testament fulfillment we're just gonna see how the Old Testament anticipates and expects a great king and then we're gonna see how the new in the New Testament Christ Jesus comes and is that King and fulfills all of those expectations so with that in mind, let's begin with Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. This is a well-known uh, passage. It's a key biblical text because it shows us how God is going to respond to fallen humanity. When Adam and Eve sin, what is God going to do? Is He going to curse and damn and condemn the whole human race? Or is He going to show grace and show mercy? We see in this section that God shows mercy intermingled with just judgment. And in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, he's speaking to the serpent and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So we see in this passage, the first dim prefiguration, or prefiguration is the wrong word, the first dim promise of a king. The expectation is first dimly set for a king here in this passage. We already have seen in our Genesis series a couple, over the last couple of months that Adam was supposed to be a king in his own right. He was supposed to rule over the earth under God, but he was supposed to exercise dominion over the earth and, and over the human race, leading the human race to be a bunch of faithful obedient citizens of a kingdom over which Adam ruled under God and so in doing so to bring everybody into submission and deference and obedience to Ultimately God himself, but Adam failed to do that. And so we see both from the typology of Adam that whoever comes if he's to bring God's original creation purposes Uh, to fruition is going to have to be a king so we kind of know that implicitly but even in genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 what we see is that someone more powerful than the evil one is going to come someone who will conquer the evil one the enemy as it were of the human race this serpent who had came and tempted eve and we'll talk a little bit more specifically about his identity and why he takes the form of a servant and so on and so forth as we resume our Genesis series uh, toward the end of January. But suffice it to say, for now, this serpent represents the enemy of the human race. And someone is going to come who is going to destroy the enemy of the human race. When you want to kill a snake, you crush its head. And that's exactly what is promised here. One of the descendants of the woman, one of Eve's descendants, is going to crush the serpent's head. And we also see, implicitly, that uh, if in the crushing of the serpent's head, surely that is a manner of speaking which also gets at the reversal of the effects of the fall and the restoration of the human race into a state of blessedness, and so... What this one who comes to crush the serpent's head is going to have to do is not only defeat the enemies of the human race, but bring a rebellious human race back into submission to God. Otherwise, the evil is going to continue to run rampant. You can defeat the external enemies of the human race, but if you don't deal with the sin within the human heart, the human race is going to continue to persevere in sin and be their own enemies. And so you're not going to affect any deliverance. And so in the promise of a deliverer, what you see is that uh, this one who is to come, if he's going to affect any sort of meaningful different, deliverance, is going to have to not only crush the serpent's head, as is explicitly promised, but he's also going to have to subdue what is now, after the fall, the rebellious human heart and bring human beings back into right relationship with God and so he's gonna have to subdue external enemies of the human race and he's gonna have to subdue internal enemies of the human race so this is just a dim a dim promise of a king in fact it's not probably not even explicit enough to say it's properly a promise of a king but it's a promise of a a deliverer. And when you think about the way that the deliverer must act, there's this exercise of authority, implicit in this promise of one who will come and crush the serpent's head. So we see a speck of light on the horizon as Adam's sin plunges humanity into a dark and deep night. Now turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. In this section, God promises a king after the line of, or in the line of David. He says in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13, unto David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom." He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then in verse 16, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. We see that the immediate referent here is Solomon. That Solomon is the immediate referent. Uh, one being referenced, but there's also a deeper fulfillment which comes later in Scripture because uh, what you see is that uh, Solomon's kingdom, uh, strictly speaking, wasn't established uh, forever. As Solomon lived and Solomon died and the kingdom split, uh, Jeroboam and Rehoboam and the ten tribes of the north and the two tribes of the south uh, were split from one another. And you see Israel plunging into chaos and disorder. And this is, hardly, this is hardly a full fulfillment of this promise of a great and glorious kingdom ruled by David's son, which will be established forever. And so you see even uh, the fulfillment that comes in Solomon leaves something to be desired in terms of God's promises to David here in 2 Samuel chapter 7. But nevertheless, uh, a son of David is promised to be a king. And over in Psalm 110, we see this promise reiterated. It's a psalm of David, so David is the author, and he says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. in holy garments, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. And then there's that section about Melchizedek that we talked about last week. And then he says, "The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of His wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations. Filling them with corpses, he will shatter chiefs over the wide earth, he will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. And Jesus makes the point that in the gospels that this is a promise of one who is greater than David, who ordinarily David's son would not be considered to be greater than David. In David's culture, the son would be inferior to the Father, and so you would look back at your forefathers as being greater than you were. But Jesus brings out the point in the Gospels that this is a promise of the son of David who will be greater than David. So you sometimes hear uh, Jesus being referred to as David's greater son. Which might not strike us in a significant way uh, as uh, Bajans in the 21st century. But to Israelites in uh, ancient times, the thought of David's greater son or the title of David's greater son would be a surprising Title. So you see, again, this promise reiterated that there will be a king who will be David's son and his kingdom will be established forever. And he will, in fact, be greater than David. And so this expectation is developing, developing, and developing. Ezekiel 34. We see in this chapter... That this king who will come is so closely identified with David that he is called, he is simply called David in this chapter. And bear in mind now that we're a long time after the death of David and after the death of Solomon. By the time we get to Ezekiel, uh, we're no longer, Solomon is out of the picture in terms of any potential fulfillment of this prophecy in Ezekiel 34. Solomon is out of the picture. So even if someone wants to say 2 Samuel 7 and Psalm 110 are only referring to Solomon, which would be incorrect, but if for the sake of argument you wanted to grant that, Ezekiel 34 can't be referring to Solomon because we're already after Solomon in the unfolding of the biblical narrative. But this is what we read in Ezekiel 34 verses 22 to 25. I will rescue my flock, this is God speaking, I will rescue my flock. So he's comparing his people to a flock. They shall no longer be a prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. And he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will make with them a covenant of peace and banish wild beasts from the land so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. Okay, so we have here a promise of a new covenant, right? There is another covenant coming that God is going to make and he is going to set up David as a shepherd over his flock, Right, which is obviously the promise of a ruler over God's people in the context of a new covenant. So we see this expectation building for this king. More and more details about what this king will be like, what will be the nature of his ministry, what's going to happen here. And he's so closely identified with David that he's actually called David in this section. He is David's son. He's referred to as David David. And so the expectation is developing and filling out. Turn over one book to the book of Daniel, chapter 7. In, David, in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. And beginning at verse 9, As I looked, thrones were placed. We're going to skip verse 11 and 12 uh, and go right to 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So again, this vision of a coming king who is going to have an eternal kingdom whose throne will be established forever. This is echoing some of the language of the promises made to David in 2nd Samuel chapter 7. Sear the description of this coming king into your minds because it will become relevant as we move over into the New Testament. One like a son of man. uh, With the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And sear into your mind not only the description of the king, but sear into your mind the description of the ancient of days in verse 9. The ancient of days took his seat, his clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool sear these things into your mind these are the, the the expectation is being set for a coming king a coming king a coming king you can't miss it as you read through the old testament there's this expectation being developed of a coming king now old testament expectation has been laid out in brief obviously this is a survey we could multiply More and more and more verses, and we could talk all night and all day tomorrow about the expectation of a coming king in the Old Testament. But these are some key texts to understand. Let's turn our attention now to the New Testament. And uh, let's begin right in Matthew chapter 1. As the New Testament opens, we read something real interesting The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Next week, I'm actually, next Sunday evening, Lord willing, I'm going to exposit this chapter, Matthew chapter 1, in greater length. But I'm going to give you a little spoiler this evening. We read in verse 17, So all the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen generations, And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now we happen to know there was actually more than 14 generations between each of these. In the ancient world, that's not an error in the Bible, because in this time and place, people didn't expect that you would give genealogies with precise exactness, the way that we might expect people to do so in the 21st century. You could structure a genealogy in such a way, skipping generations and highlighting generations in such a way to make a point, to highlight something. So why does Matthew structure his genealogy in three groups of 14? D.A. Carson, uh, who's a a scholar uh, at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, says that... uh, Hebrew numbers or pardon me Hebrew yes, Hebrew numbers uh, not only had a numerical value but they also corresponded to have a a value or they also had a value that corresponded to a particular letter the apparently the Hebrew numerical value of uh, 14 would work out somehow, and I don't know, I'm taking the linguistic experts on this one. But the, the numerical value of 14 would work out to say, David. Which means when you see 14, 14, 14 in Matthew chapter 1, it's shouting to us, David, David, David. In fact, f- over 30 more times in the gospel of Matthew Jesus refers to himself as the son of man most people assume that just simply means he's a human but there would be that nothing distinctive about the son of man because in that sense I'm a son of man and we're all sons of man right Uh, you could say well son of man he's highlighting his humanity over and against his divinity well most theologians say no. What he's doing is he's actually applying to himself uh, the identity of the king that we just read about in Daniel chapter 7, where it says one like a son of man approached the ancient of days and was given a kingdom. Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is the son of David, David himself whom God will set up over his flock. So we see already right from the get-go, as soon as the New Testament opens, the message is loud and clear. Jesus is uh, the long-anticipated King of God's people. The one we've been waiting for is here. We sang uh, earlier tonight, O come, O come, Emmanuel. This expectation right, has been building and building. Ransom captive Israel. When Jesus shows up on the scene, He's there to do just that, to ransom captive Israel and to rule over God's people. We see in Acts chapter 1, the ascension of our Lord. It's a familiar passage, so I'm not going to read at great length, but I want to highlight verse 9. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So a question. How did Jesus go into heaven? (coughs) Pardon? In a cloud. In a cloud, correct. And what did Daniel chapter 7 say? How was, how was the, the king going to approach the ancient of days? Go back to Daniel chapter 7 if you don't know. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. You see? Jesus was crucified, rose again, and then went up into heaven on the clouds of heaven. Into the presence of the ancient of days. Right? Again, this is a literary device signaling to us the king has ascended. The king has approached the ancient of days. The king has received his kingdom. Acts chapter 2 tells us explicitly what Acts chapter 1 hints at in saying that Jesus ascended in a uh, cloud. Peter is preaching. And uh, he um, talks about this promise made to David that God would set one of his descendants on the throne. This is in Acts chapter 2 and verse 30. Knowing that God... So Peter tells us explicitly what Matthew signaled to us in structuring his genealogy in 14s. what Jesus signaled to us in calling himself the Son of Man, what Acts chapter 1 signaled to us in saying that Jesus ascended and came into the presence of the Ancient of Days on a cloud. Peter tells us explicitly, he has gone into the presence of the Ancient of Days to sit at the Father's right hand on David's throne to rule over God's people forever. This is a glorious. We see all of these Old Testament things being fulfilled in Christ Jesus. And what a glorious fulfillment it is. And how, how glorious to think of the unity of this book. As we see these things developing. And all of these things coalescing in Christ Jesus. And in his ascension to the Father's right hand. Before we... We've kind of gone on to Acts, but before we get too far from the Gospels, I just want to stress this point. Christ's kingdom has already been inaugurated. Christ Jesus is already ruling. We're not waiting for Jesus to begin his reign at a later date. Christ Jesus has already begun ruling. Look at Matthew chapter 12. He casts out a demon. And the Pharisees say, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. And Jesus responds to them in verse 28 and says, If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons. And who's, who of us are going to say otherwise? Obviously it is by the Spirit of God that Jesus casts out demons, not by Beelzebub. Right? What does Jesus say? If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus came into this world to inaugurate His reign. We see the same thing confirmed as we flip over to 1 Corinthians 15. We read this. Verse... uh, then the Son Himself will, be, will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. And without exposing that passage further, I just want to make the point, Christ has begun reigning, has begun putting His enemies under His feet. And at the end, He will consummate that rule and reign, destroy the last enemy, which is death. And so what we see, whether the, the portrait that the Scripture paints for us of Christ's kingdom Is what many have called already and not yet the aspects of Christ's reign have already begun and aspects of Christ's reign are still awaiting a future fulfillment but what we see is that when Christ Jesus ascended uh, to the Father's right hand he sat down Peter tells us on David's throne in fulfillment of the Davidic Covenant The promise that God made to David to sit one of his descendants on his throne forever. Christ is the one who is ruling and reigning as David's greater son. Christ is the David who Ezekiel prophesied would rule over uh, God's flock. He is the one shepherd who rules over us. And so what we see is that all of these Old Testament expectations are fulfilled in Christ Jesus. Lastly, I just want us to turn to Revelation chapter 1 and just see this glorious portrait that Revelation chapter 1 paints for us of the risen Christ Jesus. And keep in mind the imagery from Daniel chapter 7. John hears a voice and in verse 12 he says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, which represent what? The seven churches. Look at verse 20. So the voice that was speaking to John was in the midst of the lampstands. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 13. So this this one speaking to John was in the midst of the seven churches. One like a son of man. Daniel chapter 7. Clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. Daniel chapter 7. But did you catch? The first descriptor, one like a son of man, comes from Daniel chapter 7's prophecy of the coming king who would receive a kingdom. And white hairs on his head, like white wool, like snow comes from Daniel chapter 7's description of the Ancient of Days. So this one who speaks is the Ancient of Days and is the one like a son of man who has received the kingdom. Wow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, From his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This is the resurrected Christ in all his glory. In case we had any doubt, we read on. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. So this is the Christ who died and is alive forevermore. He is the first and the last. uh, Just as the Lord God says in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Those are overlapping terms, synonymous terms. And I have the keys of death and Hades. What does that mean? it means that this one in Revelation chapter 1 has fulfilled what was spoken in Genesis chapter 3. He has overpowered the enemy of God's people. He has crushed the serpent's head. This enemy of God's people no longer uh, shall be allowed to bring death and destruction to God's people anymore for he has been overcome. His head has been crushed and now the king, the descendant of Eve who is also a descendant of David, who is one like a son of man, who is also the ancient of days. Now he holds the keys to death and Hades. And so uh, what you see is that Revelation chapter 1 gives us this portrait of all of these strands of biblical revelation coalescing in the person of our resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And that is an incredible and amazing thing. It also serves as somewhat of a bookend to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. We have this promise of a glorious king in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 toward the beginning of the Bible and toward the end of the Bible right here in Revelation chapter 1 we have this portrait of a glorious king. And so these kind of serve as bookends of the biblical story. There's a king promised. The expectation is set and developed. And then Christ Jesus comes on the scene and fulfills All of the Old Testament expectations. And then in Revelation, uh, it's as if the veil is pulled back and we see him no longer in an unimpressive, uh, normal, as it were, uh, merely human form. But we see him as the glorious resurrected one who is at the same time one like a son of man and one who is also the ancient of days. And uh, so this is just a glorious unfolding of the gospel of our salvation. And lest we miss this. This glorious one is among the lampstands. And the lampstands are the churches. Wow. So this glorious king is not just the glorious king, but he's our glorious king. He is not just up there, as it were, but he is right here, as it were. Christ Jesus is among the lampstands. Our glorious one who uh, gave himself up, this king who died for his treasonous citizens, in order to reconcile treasonous citizens to himself, in order to dwell with these treasonous citizens. as their king and to care for them and to bring their treasonous and rebellious hearts back into uh, right relationship to him in order that we would bow before him in deference and submission. This glorious one is with us, which is exactly what he promised before he left this earth in his ascension. Lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the earth. This is just... A survey, of course. We could say much more about Christ's kingship, but these are some wonderful truths, enough to ponder, enough to whet our appetite for some further study of Christ's kingship in the pages of Scripture, and enough, I trust, to edify our souls and give us great comfort as we lay our heads on our pillows tonight, that we serve a glorious, glorious King who has fulfilled and is fulfilling and shall fulfill all of the glorious kingly promises and prophecies contained in the Holy Scriptures.